Welcome to the Open Book Unbound podcast. Morning, Marjorie. Hey, Claire, how are you? I'm good, thanks. Into November. Month of Thanksgiving and Book Week Scotland. And the good thing is Book Week Scotland is the week before Thanksgiving. So it's the 15th of November. So that means that you have free range and you're not too busy and you can focus your full attention on your sweet potatoes. To the important thing, Books Week Scotland is going to be great this year. Their theme is celebration, which is really exciting for us because there's so much to finally celebrate. And we're going to be running three different workshops looking at different ways that we celebrate you know, our ourselves and I think generations is one of the things we'll be doing looking at celebrating the different generations celebrating rural versus urban so lots of different kinds of celebrations we're going to run in workshops and then at the end of the week we'll be having a reading from those writers hopefully including some of the work that get done in the workshops but also getting to hear some of the voices of the writers we love best you can find out all the details about that on the Book Week Scotland website, which is part of the Scottish Book Trust's celebrations this year. And it's a case of just booking a slot if you'd like to come along. The Open Book events are all online, so we're hoping that you'll join us and take part in that. This month, we've got our own celebrating to do, which is that we've launched our pamphlet. It's a double pamphlet this year. We had so many wonderful submissions and pieces of writing that we had to double up the number of slots that we had available to include them. So it's um, it's a beautiful publication. I love the colour you picked, Marjorie. The title, as with the other pamphlets, comes from one of the pieces in the, in the pamphlet. It's called If You Were Me. A lot of the work in the pamphlet responds to our Morgan month back in March and some of the work that's been created around that Edwin Morgan's At 80 poem. So that kind of threads through. There's lots of group poems, a fair bit of individual poems that were selected by Eddie Gibbons, our editor, not, I should say, by Claire and me, which is a great gift to us to not have to try and choose between all the voices we know so well. But luckily for us, we're going to read a couple of the poems from the pamphlet before we get stuck into a story by Raphael Tarubia called The Serpent. The first poem that we're going to read is one that was written by the Oasis group of women who meet at the Mary Hill Integration Network and their lead reader, Catherine McKinnon, works with them to produce some absolutely gorgeous work. So I think we're going to start, first of all, with one called In the Wardrobe. I slip on the gold silk sequined jacket. Makes me feel special. In the pocket, a business card without a business. A traffic policewoman's whistle dangles on a gold and brown rope. I whistle for quiet time. Feel the hem of a dance outfit where Gujarati women in the desert embroidered the warmth of peacocks, elephants. This kanga reaches around the waist, carries a baby, shopping, wraps the hair. The hem bears wise words of advice. The stripes of these shorts, warm pink, yellow and soft white, comfort me when I miss home. Here, my grandmother Sari, my connection with her, on off-white and maroon silk, the paisley pattern of teardrops, the cypress tree, the pine and the cone. Little things have big memories. These pattern ties my father wore and his cigar case which sits in the corner cabinet smells of the past. Cologne, cigars, elegance. I remember the feeling of my grandfather's silk cravat. Paisley patterned. In my jacket of sequins, I drink cold water from a gold-rimmed glass. 
I had the great privilege of working with this group of women for a few years before I sadly had to relinquish that group to another one of our terrific lead readers, Catherine. But what's remarkable about that group, and I think you can really see it in this poem, is it's it's usually 25 women from all over the world sitting around the room. You know, they all speak different languages, and there's an awful lot of translating going on across the table, around the table. Not just often one translation, but, but various translations, people asking for the meanings of words. And in this poem, it feels like you can hear so many of those voices, you know, what all these women keep in the wardrobe. It's almost like a round-the-world trip, isn't it, when you read this? And that sense of longing, you know, that memories that there's sort of little, I love that line, little things have big memories. You know, the idea that when you pick up an object, no matter how small, brings back a time, you know, or a place or a person. The other thing I love is the way that there's so much of it that is unfamiliar and evocative because I'm, I'm not familiar with it. But there's so many little snippets in there that, I, that speak to me and I, and I know exactly what the women were thinking when they wrote it. So I whistle for quiet time, you know, carrying the baby and shopping. And it's just snippets of the unknown woven in with the really familiar. Like all good poems, they're real questions too. You know, I love that, a business card without a business. What's the story there? Is the business lost? Is it a business that doesn't exist anymore? Is it that you got a card that says, which I've seen what lots of people do, Marjorie Lotfi poet. <laughs> I'm not sure I would call that a business. It's really interesting. You know, there's so many possibilities and we're kind of just given, it feels like a little stack of photographs, really. I have to point out the last line. What an amazing line. The idea that a jacket of sequins brings back cold water from a gold-rimmed glass in the same way that you might think, oh, well, the last time I wore that dress, I was I mean, I, I would love to think that. Let, let nobody out there be mistaken that this is actually what my life is like. But, you know, I'd love to be able to hold the hem of a dress and think, well, I was having a cosmopolitan the last time <laughs> from a gold rim glass or something. But that's what brought to mind that idea that there was a very specific moment that a gold sequin jacket could bring. And there's something about the writing that makes you stop and think, wait, hang on a minute. There's not a glass of cold water in a jacket. So what does that actually mean? That's funny. I had a completely different interpretation of that. I had imagined the writer slipping on her gold sequin jacket and standing by the sink thinking, oh, I'm in my gold sequin jacket. I'm going to drink from my special glass and digging out that sort of celebration glass, the one that goes on the table for special meals, birthdays or whatever, and thinking, I'm going to have my glass of cold water from the gold rimmed glass because I'm wearing my jacket. Was the image in my head, but I can see how, like, exactly your interpretation of it, just recalling a time when you were doing that as well. That's why. I, that's why I love the the poetry we look at together because I always get something from it when you've read it. It's totally different from what my mind's done with it. Such a gift, and it's a particular gift to see that the the writing that's being done in our groups is doing that too. You know, it's got enough in it that we're kind of it has an awful lot in it. You know, that we're we come up with different interpretations. So. That's lovely. I feel like we should probably move on to Raphael's story, The Serpent. We haven't said yet that this month's theme is maps. And in some ways, we chose that poem thinking there was a kind of mapping, you know, not a map in the traditional way, but a kind of mapping of memory or of history, or it would be an interesting thing to write. And I think they have done a wardrobe as a map. Will I read the first bit? Yes, please. We all see the serpent at least once. Kathy says she saw it down the shops, the flick of a tail disappearing behind the celery, gliding onwards past the custard creams. I first saw it in the river, 
its spined head dipping behind the headland as the last rays of sun slid off the bridge and the little sandy islands emerging from the tide. I watched it move between the sandpiper and curlew, oyster catcher and turnstone. Light and sinuous, but definitely there, the curved muscle of its body furrowing the damp sand, its broad metallic nose dipping into the water's edge. I watched it for what felt like hours, in what felt like silence, even though the roar of traffic swelled and ebbed behind me. I watched until, at last, its head rose and the length of it craned upwards to the concrete bow of the bridge where I stood. I felt its gaze meet mine, and even though the day was grey and grim, and even though the work had left me in tears again, I felt a thrill in my soul, like water made electric, like a song striking the bone. I felt a thrill in my soul as it met my gaze on the edge of the bridge, and I stepped back. I've since found out, several months and too many microwave lasagnas later, that I'm just the latest to have seen the serpent move. It's an odd crew we have, those who've been graced with a glimpse. We find our way to each other and swap stories of our first sightings, of all the places that lifting vertiginous thrill has entered our lives. My uncle Dave saw it coiled in a crab shell going over the minch, near enough to where his brother drowned that a shiver ran the length of his spine. Cassie saw it when they came out to their father, and he was already there, with a beautiful dress and a half-smile hung on his face. At his back, asleep in front of the three-bar fire, the serpent. Mary found it chewing on the garden flowers where the dog is buried, just lightly, barely enough to bruise the stem. Wherever it appears, we try to keep track of it, have tried for years, since my grandfather's time at least. We have a map, if you can believe it. It lives in my kitchen right now, half-drowned in post-it notes and pushpins, the kids' permission slips and the shopping lists, chickpeas, tobacco, little gems, light bulbs. We've never seen the full shape of it, although my Auntie Pat left some charcoal sketches, a glimpse of an eye, a twist of a needle-toothed jaw, sly. She was a heck of an artist, Pat. The virus took her last winter, wicking the air from her lungs in the care home on Magdalen Road. I wonder if she saw the serpent again before she went. I wonder if it came to her window as she passed. The map I have is Pat's work, passed down to me, because I'm the only one of us who stayed put long enough to find a wall to hang it on. Hang isn't quite the right word. What Pat made was part picture, part memorial, part map, and legend. A careful accounting of every sighting of the serpent in our lives. It might have begun life as an ordnance survey map, but over time, Pat's systems of clippings and cuttings has turned it into something more. A collage of minor discoveries. A chart of unexpected respites an evolving survey of joy. Over time, she found she hadn't been the first to try this. She collected photos of those forebears and added them to the map, the fridge door sprouting a gallery of doer faces held in dogger type and calotype, 
It seemed strange to me when I was younger that all this should fall to her, Pat, with her thick glasses and her thicker cardigans, with her patent leather shoes and her oblivious dog who dodged misfortune every day as she stepped around its ragged little form, pinning photos to notes and notes to places. Looking back, it's no wonder that Pat became our chronicler, our cartographer, our sketcher of the barely seen. She was a history teacher in her heyday, in the girls' school down Blackness Way. I mind she said to me once, Historians are people who keep the body alive. That never made much sense to me at the time, but now I think it does. There's something in the knowing of things that fills the soul, that makes moving through the world a bit easier, that places you at a point on an ever-extending thread. If that's true, then it's the women in my family that keep our body alive. They're the keepers of memory, the knowers of names, the folk who can tell you who married your cousin after his first wife, the one who died, you know, the one who got emphysema in the end, who married him and what became of her and what square patch of land she rests in now covered over in daisies and thick, untended grass, the serpent hunters. Should we stop there? Yeah, loads to talk about. I love the image of that map. So much so I want to create one myself. Not of Serpent's Mind, but... I did the same and just envisaged what it looked like. And it sort of reminded me a bit of the sort of that idea of a school project, you know, when you have to produce a poster or produce a, something that summarizes a topic or summarizes a thing and you end up cutting bits out of magazines and sticking photos on and, you know, little bits of information that you've picked up. Yeah, I I remember a couple of years ago at the Wig Town Book Festival, we had a kind of map room and on one wall was an enormous map of Galloway. I was really taken with it because there were like pins stuck into the map and then strings tied from the pins along, as you say, to kind of images or little bits of writing or bits of writing that had been done historically, you know, so bits of poems and other things. And you could spend hours just, and there was something about the string, you know, the kind of almost like radiating out into the corners of, of the wall, which I was really, it was, you know, it just was remarkable that all that information was into these tight little spaces. And I think that must be what this map, you know, I like the untidiness of the way that it sounds, just like stuff stuck on there. It's just layering of kind of family history, which I think is amazing. And I imagine it with lots of different people's handwriting. You know, when you go back to look at it, you think, oh, that's such and such writing, or that's such and such. I, I've just finished putting together a book of red recipes from families and friends to give to my son who's gone off to university and the ones that I sort of jumped out at me were the people who hand wrote a wee note or hand wrote the recipe and stuck it in and I even managed to find a recipe in my granny's handwriting and she's no longer with us which I included um, in the book and there's something about seeing the person's writing when you recognize it that recalls them to you and that's how I imagined this map you know covered in different people's comments and thoughts. And what is it that they're mapping? I mean, this is the thing, the big question for me about the story is sightings of the serpent. And is it one serpent? Or is it significant places? I I mean, you know, as an American who grew up on the East Coast, you know, you couldn't map all the times you'd seen a snake because they were all over the place. But is it a snake or is it a shiver of reminiscence or is it a a particular feeling that you recognize as, I don't know what feeling seeing a snake would bring on, fear or 
trepidation or is it just times and places when you've had that feeling for whatever reason? Because a lot, to me, that a lot of the scenarios that are listed of when the sightings were, were times when there's fear or regret or anxiety or, you know, some sort of negative emotion. It must be in my head, it's the people in the family that see a snake when they feel that emotion, rather than the seeing of a snake or the people who feel that emotion. Those Venn diagrams are much bigger. Because, you know, what confused me and made me think, hmm, is when we got to Uncle Dave, seeing it in a crab shell. Well, you know, crab shells aren't big. They're not that, even the biggest of crab shells aren't that big. You know, the idea that a snake could be coiled in one means it, in my head, it's a different snake than the one he's seen. Maybe it's a shape-shifting snake. Maybe it's one of these sort of mythological family legends. Oh, you've seen the snake. I should say that Raphael is one of our lead readers. So we can ask them what they think about or the answers to some of these questions if you really want. Although we shouldn't promise. (laughs) I love this idea of it, it being the women that are the keepers of memory. I don't know if that's true in your, your family, Margie, but certainly in mine. I can think of several of the women who are the people that organize the family lunches and never forget the, all the cousins' birthdays and send them a card on the right day and do seem to be the, the spider at the center of the family web that just keeps everybody looped in together. And the family WhatsApp group, it's, it's often you know, those women that are the ones that are sharing the news or the important life events. Yeah, I'm just trying to work out whether it's a cultural thing. It's certainly true in my American family. But then, you know, my mother comes from a family of women, really. Four women and and, a, and one brother. So it's hard not to say. And my, my grandmother was a really strong character. That said, my grandfather was too. But I know much more about her side of the family for that reason. Whereas my dad comes from a family of men. I, I was sort of thinking maybe that's true in families and then... I have a sense that like local history and the plotting of history rather than family history, maybe it's just the people I know that are interested in that tend to be men um, and less so women. You know, that kind of what happened in this house or what happened in this area, all the Viking stuff. The, the men I know seem to be interested in that, or I should say the people I know that are interested in that seem to be men more than women. But I, I'm just not sure if that's a line I'd be happy to draw, really. In, in my family, it's definitely Auntie Jill that has the family tree that she's mapped going back and forward and sideways and produces for significant birthdays for many members of the family a photograph album of all their relations and ancestors that they might no, not know about with a little story about what they did and where they came from. And And does Auntie Jill have children? Yes. In my family, the person that keeps that information doesn't have children, um, isn't married. And I I always thought that part of that, her interest in that was about having a different relationship with the family. Not necessarily because she needed, she's a really busy person with loads of things that she gets on with, but as a different way of connecting with family, as it were, you know, and kind of digging harder and deeper into down the way in the family tree rather than her sisters who've got broods of their own and are kind of busy with them. So we always look to Auntie Anita for, um, you know, where we came from and who was related to who and who arrived from where in the States, which is always the question. Shall we keep going to see what happens? Shall I read the next section? Yeah. Hard to put myself in Pat's patent shoes. Hard to string myself on that thread. Even once Pat was gone and her sole gift to me was the map carelessly bundled into an old carpet bag, unfolding into my kitchen like an accordion of arcana, stinking of fag smoke and dog hair. 
I did what I could, though, and I dare say I've done her proud. It verged on an obsession for me for a while, something only shared between Pat's ghost and I. But that changed the more I understood. The serpent is harder to hunt alone. Bringing company is easier now I'm someone I can stand to be around, now that I don't fear to see myself reflected in the faces of my kids. We go hunting the serpent however we may, chasing feelings sometimes, otherwise poring over elevation charts and weather surveys. Sometimes we're lucky, sometimes we're not. But the chase always yields more clues. Strange spur scraped into door sill paint, the refractive leap of scales in the setting sun, the faintest hiss of breath moving through long ribs under a harvest moon. We're always tired after these excursions, always falling back into the car and into ourselves, clutching chip butties, slurring our way home in the vinegared air, tanged with new discoveries. We've not got it down to a science, I doubt we ever will, but every early morning service station with crows coughing over the road, every late night trawl through half-lit towns brings us one step closer. In the interim, I've learnt some things. I've learnt that the days will tick by whether you are happy or not. I've learnt that love is an easy benediction for a heart that loves itself. I've learnt that we are all charting routes from the day we are born. We've all travelled with the people who brought us into this life, those that left us along the way and the unseen promises of those yet to arrive. We have all seen some strange things and come out alive. And if there is a trick to hunting the serpent, then I would think it is this. It is easiest seen when it moves between us and when we make space for it to move. And when we are alone, the space it seeks only requires the briefest of kindnesses to flower. A moment of quiet, a moment of grace, a moment of release. The briefest guidances of ping, prick and string, maps to the silver fires that burn in the waiting hearth of our hearts. I love that last set of lines. I do as well. And it, it flips for me because at, at the beginning, the serpent made me think of something to be avoided. You didn't necessarily want to see it. It was quite scary, quite an unpleasant thing associated with something unpleasant. But by the end of this and, and the hunting for it, it becomes almost like a holy grail and something you're seeking out. Yeah. And I wonder whether it's something to do with, you know, imagine if the serpent is death or our mortality, the idea that you go out hunting for it and see bits of it and come back enlivened makes me think of sea swimming really in the middle of the winter when you're breaking the ice you know the idea that you climb hills or you rock climb or you do things that are exhilarating in part because they are so close to the edge and then the fact that you come back from them it makes the serpent an interesting quest you know kind of figure rather than terrifying rather than that death specter who comes to collect you at the end of a life whenever that might be by cheating or by going close to the edge and coming back, you're more alive than you were if you didn't do that. 
Yeah, I mean, we quite often say that, don't we? You know, the great the great moment of sea swimming when you come out of the water in the middle of the winter is your, your first thought is, well, I'm still here. Everything else falls away, and I, I'm not a rock climber, but I imagine that, that would, there would be a sense of that as well when you get to the top of something. Well, I've made it. I've done it. So I wonder, you know, that idea, there was something about that sensation, I think, when story goes to we, we get out the maps and the rocks and the ropes and we look, you know, we're out looking for it not necessarily needing to find it. A little glimpse of it seems to be enough. And then the end of the story feels like a benediction. I know they use the word benediction and it and it does. It feels like a kind of benediction, like a it's almost something church-like about it, you know, that kind of repetition of things that we believe at the end, which is beautiful, beautifully written. And that final line, the briefest guidance of pinprick and string maps to the silver fires that burn in the waiting hearth of our hearts. Just beautifully just wraps up and brings us full circle you know in in the sense of sometimes it's just really lovely to have a story that you feel ah that just wrapped itself up nicely sometimes it's lovely to have an open-ended I wonder what happens but I thought that was a really content a real sense of contentment from that ending well, I feel it does, it, in some ways it's the opposite for me. I feel it's really open-ended in the way that we have no idea what's happening to the person hunting this the serpent in the story. You know, that line about we need to make the spaces in between. There's somehow something happening there where I feel, yeah, okay, so the lack of resolution is in and of itself a resolution. And that's the moral, as it were, of this story, which is we are still hunting. You know, we've got to make space for it this in our lives between us rather than trampling over it as it were and by doing that we create you know kind of gaps where we're able to be happy which is lovely so yeah i don't feel it's resolved at all but i feel somehow at peace with that in a way that i wouldn't otherwise normally i think for me the, the resolution or the contentment comes from the sense of switching from an external viewpoint to an internal and let's look to the fires that burn the hearth of our heart we don't constantly need to be looking out and seeking and trying to find, you know, the, the contentment that we're looking for can sometimes be found from within. Yeah, and the reflections at the end really show that that person has gotten to the point of, yeah, reflecting. In a, it seems like a really settled way. So as a, that's a really interesting fact because I think because the narrator seems settled, we as readers feel settled. It's always such a joy to have beautiful writing from our lead readers in particular. And we have an amazing gang of writers that work with our open book groups. So thank you so much to Raphael for writing this and for letting us have it. And it's a fully open book episode because we're going to wrap up with another poem from the Oasis group from Mary Hill Integration Network, um, which is a different kind of mapping, I think, again, but you can decide for yourselves. It's called, I should give Catherine McKinnon the credit for as lead reader writing, carrying the pen for this group, but it's the words of the women in the group. What every woman should carry. Always carry a gift from a small child alongside a flight of fancy sweets and mints, an extra bag for milk or bread. Take all the money you need Take a small book of wise words. Take hand sanitizer to keep you safe and to help others. When traveling beyond the stars, bring hairspray to fix your hair and to fix those who misbehave. Take fear 
when you are leaving the house. Take distance, silence, sunscreen. Water is essential if you feel sad. Remember a photo of a child, a mirror that is a memory, sunglasses, magazine, geese in flight. Sometimes you have to wait for the right destination. I love the, I know I shouldn't laugh, but I love the hairspray to fix your hair, but also to fix other people. <laughs> I'd never thought of the dual use of hairspray before. <laughs> it's but, um, so sticky as well. You can see someone getting a sly little squirt if they're not behaving. I feel like hairspray is such a, I don't know whether it's just because my mother used it, you know, and I never have, um, whether it feels like it's a generational thing, but I, uh, I just love this um, Mary Poppins bag of what women should carry. And we've got sunscreen next to silence and distance. You know, there's like the practical hand sanitizer plus, you know, um, a photo and, you know. The book of wise words. Yeah. And next, you know, at first you think, well, we're going to, this is going to be a really practical poem. You know, if we got sweets and mints and an extra bag in your bag, fair enough, all the money you need and wise words, hand sanitizer, and then, you know, hairspray. It's just, you know, woven in between. And the idea of when you're traveling beyond the stars. I love that line. Because as you say, it starts off so practical. I imagine someone going to the shops or doing the school run, and then it just suddenly expands outwards. And the idea of, you know, and even the language is just stunning. Fix your hair and then fix those who misbehave is just a, it's just a lovely way of putting that, um, that you don't see it coming. But then right after that, you're hit over the head with take fear when you're leaving the house. The idea that we have to take it with us, because if you don't, then you're not being careful enough. Yeah, which is, you know, it's, it's in the news all the time at the moment, isn't it? This whole question of women and... And I really feel that in that poem somehow, that line took me right to that moment of these questions were being asked about why women should be carrying their fear with them, you know. And actually, but the reality is, as a, as a practical matter, as the mother of two teenage daughters, absolutely, I want them to take fear. I wish they didn't have to, but I want them to take fear when they leave the house, because if they don't, you know, I want them to be wise and have that reality with them it really reminded me of my mum who used to always say when I was a teenager leaving the house mind your handbag and that was mind your handbag that was exactly her way of of saying take fear with you you know be careful she wasn't saying mind your handbag she was just saying pay attention keep your wits about you we'd love to not have to say that to our own daughters but the reality is you know we do I think I've said before my you know when I was growing up my I had a curfew and my brother didn't. I was furious about that and have always been furious about that, you know, because the idea was my brother was a big, tall bloke, quite sporty. Nobody was going to bother him in Washington, D.C. Probably somebody could have, but, you know, he, he was far safer out at night in the dark than me. I remember being absolutely furious and always promising myself that I wouldn't do the same to my children. And they do have the same curfew, but the reality is I'm much more worried about the girls, you know. You know, that's me taking fear without having to leave the house, you know, just being practical with, with great sadness, having to be practical in that way. So, but it, it really comes through in this poem, that line in the middle and, and take distance is a really, you know, beautiful two words because already that acknowledges for me, the distance between the women writing this poem and their families. Yeah. And their, and their homes and where they've come from. There's a real, again, this feels like a map, you know, almost like you could map 
what you carry in your handbag or what you wish to carry in your handbag as a, as a way of telling us who you are. This poem feels like it does that too. And the final three lines are beautiful as well. Sunglasses, magazine, geese in flight. Sometimes you have to wait for the right destination. You have a real sense of the uncertainty and the reticence maybe to put down roots in this place um, that some of these women feel because they're just not sure what's coming next. It's, yeah, it's a, it's a beautiful poem. I love that one. Thanks, Catherine, for helping the group to write it. And you can, you can read it in our pamphlet. If you'd like a copy, you can pick up one on our website, openbookreading.com. It's called, it's the latest one, called If You Were Me. I think that's just about us for today. If there's nothing else you want to add to our conversation. (laughs) There's always something else, but we have to stop somewhere, Claire. (laughs) So, but thanks for joining us and thanks for having us in your ears. We hope you'll join us again next month for our December Unbound podcast. Bye for now.